Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Continue on, Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 43. Father, that we know that there is none like you, and here we are before you as your creatures, as your children, and as those who have your word open. And Lord, we need you and your mercy and your grace to now speak to us by the Spirit, through the Word. Oh Lord, help us to examine our own hearts and our minds this morning. And Lord, see if there be any wicked way in us. And expose that so that we would repent and turn to You and find healing and grace. Work in us now, we ask in Jesus. Amen. Well, last week I preached a sermon about the severity of the battle we're engaged in with our enemy who seeks to destroy us and wants nothing but our annihilation. And I, and I hopefully I presented to you guys a strong case for how serious the battle is and also what we need to do in it, the weapons of our warfare and how much we need prayer and the word together, not neglecting either if we're ever to expect to push the enemy back and see the kingdom of God advance in our lives, in our families, in our homes, in the world around us. And I believe it's a very important message, incredibly important, especially because I think as Reformed types, we hear far too little about that, far too little about the nature of the battle. And I hope for you guys it really affected your prayer life. I hope it had an impact on your prayers last week your prayers for your family, your friends, your neighbors, and the world around you. Because it truly is essential that we understand this and implement it. Because I think sometimes we end up living as blinded scientific materialists who aren't much different than the world when it comes to our understanding of what's really going on around us. Because it isn't hard to drift into the place where all we do is live according to what we see with our eyes, not understanding what's really going on spiritually. And this week, we're actually going to be moving to a different portion of Scripture. And at first blush, when we read it or look at it, you might be thinking, well, how is this connected to last week? Because it seems so odd. Actually, it looks like we've got three random events. And it seems like They just, whoever edited this, just threw them in there. And it's not the case at all. Actually, what we're going to see, it's very connected and tied to what we've already just looked at last week as we see how the enemy works in and amongst the disciples and the things that they're doing here in this text. And these are very connected, as we'll see. Here's the thing. As we begin in verse 43... The first thing we'll notice is that this is happening and is revealed to us that Jesus all of a sudden almost seems to say something random. Because in verse 43, we're going to find out that Jesus' mission, he has a mission, but that we don't get it. And clearly the disciples didn't get it. The text in verse 43 reads this way. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, okay, this is so while they were marveling, what was he just doing? He just delivered this 
boy from demons. He exercised demons and they came out of him. So while they're marveling at this, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Let them sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. So the disciples and everyone were, were just reeling in what just happened. They were excited and they couldn't believe they had encountered the majesty and the power of God as Jesus with a mere word exercises these demons. But Jesus' thoughts were not with them. His thoughts were not there at the time, in the moment. He wasn't reveling in the glory of the salvation and deliverance of a boy. Instead, his mind was somewhere else. Jesus, his thoughts were on Jerusalem and what was about to take place there as he heads towards Jerusalem. And he really wants his disciples to understand, if you look at this text, he wants them to know this. They're all excited about what's going on, and this is a great moment. God showed up. God did something marvelous in our midst. And Jesus says, listen to me, guys. I want you to know something. Let these words, these are a direct quote, let these words sink into your ears. I want you to understand this. We can see that it's what's, this is truly what's on Jesus' heart and mind because it's the central theme that's been emerging throughout this particular chapter. Chapter 9 is popping up. And it's, just, it's now for the first time in the gospel starting to come to the forefront. In chapter 9, if you go back and look at verse 21, Jesus introduces the idea for the first time. When he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then right after this, when Jesus took the three disciples up on the mountain and transformed before their very eyes, it says this in verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke. What did they speak of? They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then a few verses later, now here where we are in our text, here's the, a short time after Jesus once again brings it up. That What's going to happen? I want you to know that I, the Son of Man is about to suffer severely under the hands of men. So this is the one thing, all of a sudden, this is on the forefront of Jesus' mind. This is weighing heavily on him. And the reason is because he knows the trauma of it. It's going to be more than any human has ever experienced. It's going to be awful. And as you could imagine, if you could anticipate something very awful happening to you, where are your thoughts? On it. You're not thinking about, all the great things that might be happening in your life right now, it really doesn't matter much because this one thing is coming up. Despite the fact that he does these marvelous things, that this power came from him, and that this boy was delivered, and, and the people were all excited about what God is doing, praising God. Despite all that, Jesus' mind, he can't get it off the fact of what's going to about to happen, and you, you can fully understand. But like usual, the disciples don't get it. They don't get it. Because as the text says, it was concealed from them. Meaning 
the Spirit had not illumined their mind to understand the truth. So there it was before them. It went in their ears, right? They heard it, but they didn't get it. Like, what are you talking about? Well, and then he said, I'm not going to ask him because I'm afraid. I, I feel like an idiot. Like, ask him what you're talking about? So they said nothing. But as a result, here's what was able to happen. Satan was able to have his way with this particular truth. And he was the one working in Peter's thoughts. When Peter rebuked Jesus about saying that he was, when he, oh, you're not going to suffer and die. Don't be crazy. We know that he was in Peter's thoughts. And how do we know that Satan was in Peter's thoughts? Messing with his head because what does Jesus say? Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. And he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Call him Peter. That's a nice one. Call him Peter, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus says this because he knows where these thoughts were coming from. These thoughts were coming from Satan himself. Satan's work at planting thoughts in Peter's head. And Peter was going with it, thinking it was a good thought. This is often how Satan works. You know, the number one battleground for him in your lives is your, is your thoughts. He works in your thoughts, puts thoughts in your head, which we often fall victim to, undiscerningly fall victim to, and they end up causing us to stumble. Just think of how often we hear about what God's mission is for us, but we don't get it. His mission for us is actually pretty simple. If he declares to us, what are we to do? He says we're to love God, love others, and extend the kingdom of this love around the world, discipling all nations. He's given us a mission. It's a simple mission, but we don't get it. We also know he, this, he's also promised and told us that this mission that you're on is going to come with hardship, struggles, and difficulties, trials, But when these difficulties, hardships come, we're tempted to think that God is against us. Right? Would you admit that? Often, when they come, the hardship, the trials, the struggles come, we, we, we have a thought that you know, God is against us, or that God doesn't care, or that maybe he's on vacation somewhere. He doesn't see what's going on. God, where are you? These are thoughts planted in our minds by the evil one. His desire is to get us to not trust God. That's ultimately what he wants, to not like God and to think God must not care very much for us. Therefore, forget God. I can guarantee you that if hardship has befallen you in some way before, you were tempted to think ill of God. Because the enemy of your souls, will always spin it this way. And it's easy in those moments for the arguments to make sense. You know what we have to learn? We have to learn and understand that we're going to do battle with our enemy in our minds, primarily. Paul exhorts in 2 Corinthians 10, 
that we are to take every thought, hear that? Every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are to be, according to Romans 12, to be renewed, sorry, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Taking thoughts captive, being renewed in our minds, being transformed through this. We're to set our minds, it says in Colossians, on things above, not on things of this earth. We're to, in Philippians, he talks about whatever is good, pure, right, and true. Set your mind on these things. He knows that what's going to happen is you're going to have thoughts, and these thoughts will come in, you believe these thoughts, and they're powerful because what we think turns into what ends up, and if we believe it, then all of a sudden it results in actions. That's how we are as people. We often have, you feel things right now based on what you're thinking and believing. So we're, if you want to con- be controlled, you just have to control your thinking. And the enemy knows this. Just look at what the enemy did in the garden with Eve. He begins by casting suspicion on what God said. And when he, then he moves to cultivate unbelief in what God said. And ultimately, causing God to look like someone he's not. Some ogre some meanie, somebody who's really, truly withholding, if you really think about it. And then this is the data starts to make sense when you start to look, and, and all of a sudden the argument makes sense by what you're looking at. And this is what happens with Eve. You know, he, Satan starts off, and this is how he, he, he starts off talking. Has God said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see what he's doing there? He knows what God said. It's just, has God really said, has he said that you shouldn't eat every tree in the garden? And Eve goes, Eve corrects him. And notice what she does. She actually nails it. No, 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 no. We're allowed to eat of every tree of the garden. It's only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that we not, shall not eat. And the moment we eat of it, we will, we will die. That's how she responds. She responds with accuracy about what the word of God truly says. And then what does Satan do? He retorts jokingly. (laughs) You can almost see it. (laughs) You will not die. That's what he says. Die? uh, You're crazy. You'll not die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll become like him, knowing good from evil. Come on. So now, with this thought in her mind, she starts to calculate all the data. The text tells us what happens next. She sees how beautiful the tree is and how pleasing the fruit is. It looks delicious. And then she begins to think, probably, this is probably her thought process. It doesn't say this in the text. I'm not going to die if I eat this. Yeah, He's right. God wouldn't do that. Look how good he is anyways. I mean, we wouldn't die. This look, the other thing is just look at how good and beautiful and delicious. This tree is amazing. That fruit, wow. Everything else we've tried in here and all everything else has been, has been delicious so far. This has got to be something else. And you know what? God is just probably exaggerating. He's probably just exaggerating the penalty because he doesn't want us to have too much power. 
There's something he's withholding us for a reason. And I just think that it's, it's probably just for our own safety. She's probably rationalizing somehow. She has to be. But all the data with what Satan brought in and the data, what she's seeing, it's starting to like, it makes sense by the look of the tree, by what God said, and she's kind of making it all work out. So now the logic's starting to work. Yes, okay. And now she's, she's, the thoughts came in. She starts to believe them. And when she believes them, then she acts. And we know what happens afterwards. And isn't this how it works for us? This is really what goes on in our lives, probably on a daily basis. We know God has revealed his plan for us. We know what his will is. We know Jesus is, we know what Jesus was up to. We know what Jesus' plan was. We know where he is going. And it says the disciples didn't really get it. They don't get it. But often what ends up happening is we know what God has for us. We know what Jesus has for us, but we don't get it. Because we end up believing lies. God has, it's not like he hasn't promised. God has promised, he's spoken to us. Yet what we have trouble with is believing it in light of what we're seeing with our eyes. So we have struggle, we have difficulty, we have trial, we have temptation, we have all kinds of sufferings come into our lives. And what do we often conclude from that? Is it not easy to conclude that God doesn't like me, he must be against me, or he's nowhere to be found? And it's very easy for these thoughts to come into our minds. And so we don't get it. We don't get what's even going on or happening. And this is exactly what the enemy wants for us. And this is why, with what might seem like a random shift all of a sudden in our text, we have the, the, the disciples arguing about which one of them will be the greatest. Very connected. So Jesus says this, tells them the mission of God. They don't get it. And the next thing they do, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. That's kind of what we're like. This is like ADHD. Uh, it's just God's trying to reveal to us something. We don't get it. And next thing you know, we're on to talking about something. Just it, You're almost like, what, what are you doing? Why are you over here? What, what, you're talking about being great? And there's a reason why this is happening. This is, we're going to see how this comes together, these two portions, because it's pretty significant. Look at verse 46. It says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child, put him at, by his side, and said to them, whoever receives him, sorry, whoever receives me, oh, let me, let me back up and skip one. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. So they started arguing. Not about which of them could wash Jesus' feet that night. Not which one could serve one another. Not about, hey, could I, could I be the one who gets to, um, get to bless you guys? No. They're arguing about who, who among them is, so who, who do you think is the greatest among us? Right? It's easy to tell what's on their mind. Well, it's easy to tell what's on Jesus' mind. 
The apostles are thinking exaltation while Jesus is thinking humiliation. And this is often what happened. Jesus wants humility. We want exaltation. Totally contrary, totally, total contrary purpose. Jesus knows that he's headed to his death, but the disciples think he's headed towards the throne. Now, we've talked about this in the past. It's, re- it's really clear from Scripture, the Old Testament, if you just read on the surface of it and don't know how it fits together or works, it, it can, it, you can easily present an argument where Jesus, the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he is going to establish the throne of David and throw out all the enemies, and they're going to live in prosperous peace, Right? It's easy to think that. And this is really the primary and the fundamental understanding of the work of Messiah. It's deeply ingrained in them. And it makes perfect sense, especially what's with what's happening. There is a massive crowd of people beginning to surround Jesus. His popularity is through the roof. They're seeing him work things in power, and they're watching the power... Uh, go away from the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious lead of, his day, of the day. And the, the crowds are starting to follow Jesus. And these people, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they can't handle this. They're jealous. They're angry. They hate this guy because everyone's starting to follow him. And it gets even worse than this. This is escalating. They're about to go into Jerusalem. This is getting close to Palm Sunday. And John chapter 12, verses 12 and following, it says this, a great multitude that had come to the feast, Passover, when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and they went out to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna, waving the palm branches. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The King of Israel. This is what they were saying. Jesus is riding on a donkey, entering into the city, and there's a a vast multitude, a huge number of people. We're out there with palm branches praising him, saying, Hosanna, blessed be God in the highest. And here comes the king of Israel. This was the expectation of Israel. And they thought Jesus was going to be the king of Israel. Ascend, go to David's throne. And what's going to happen when David, when, sorry, when, when King, uh, Jesus goes to the throne of David? This is it. He is now established and set upon the throne as the king of Israel. And what's the first thing the king is going to have to do is put together his cabinet. And if you're really close to Jesus, what do you think is going to happen with you? Yes, and you're going to get some sweet positions. Because there's some positions that got to be handed out. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty close to Jesus. I see where this is going. Jesus is talking, yeah, talking to Jerusalem. I know we're headed to Jerusalem. He's talking crazy nonsense about dying and raising again from the dead. Like, they don't, And we know they don't get it, but this is what they get. They get his popularity. They get what they're seeing. And this is one thing they are convinced of. They know. Jesus already affirmed it. He's Messiah. They know he's Messiah. These guys are jacked and pumped. We're headed to Jerusalem. Look at what just happened. And Jesus starts talking nonsense. Okay, forget that. Who's going to be the greatest? 
and they're having a little argument. And in, in, in other texts, it's, it's, it's spoken more clearly that they actually were having this privately. And what happens is Jesus, Jesus knows what's going on. He knows even their thoughts. Because they don't really want to bring this up in front of Jesus after he's talking what he's saying. And so they're, they're, they're conversing privately. Hey, guys, what, do you th- what position do you think you're going to get? Who do you think is going to be the greatest? Who's going to get the right hand? Right? And that's very natural for us. It's very easy for us. And it's exactly what the enemy does to us. Because as, as people, what do we want? We want positions of power, authority. We want, we want to be able to have rule. We want to have people listen to what we're saying. We want to, have, we want to be in a place of, uh, of success and prosperity. We want the highest seat possible. Our hearts want these things. But these people, just, just like us, don't understand the nature of the kingdom and what makes for true greatness. And so as a result, what are we but easily persuaded? The enemy puts thoughts in our heads, thoughts of greatness, and the pride in our hearts kind of like the thoughts. So we go with the thoughts, and we like to really milk these thoughts because, boy, if I could be king for a day. Wouldn't it be good to be king for a day? Absolute rule. Couldn't we not clean things up, folks? Right? Isn't that a fun thought to have? Like, could you just imagine what I could say could be done? Oh, doesn't your pride and your flesh love that? So when thoughts of this grandeur start coming into your head, it's easy for your flesh to go with it and start liking it. This is nice. You know what? Here's the thing. It isn't wrong. It isn't wrong in and of itself to want greatness. Jesus never rebukes them for wanting to be great. He never says, get out of your heads, every one of you, this idea of greatness. It's wrong. That's of the devil. Stop it. Get lowliness in your head. No, he says, listen, he says, if you want to be great. So he's saying, yeah, if you want to be great, thing is, there's a way to be great. If you want to be great, and then he takes this little child into his midst, he says, you've got to become like a little child. Because, you know, in that day, by doing what Jesus did, what, what's happening is the people are seeing a firsthand example of what this looks like. Because children are not like children in our culture. You know, children in our culture are typically very highly esteemed, and they're, we delight in them, and they're, you know, every, everybody just, oh, look how cute, look how lovely, and look, you know, they, they basically can run roughshod over everything, right? In that particular culture, they were, they were on the lowest level. It's kind of like a kid if he's saying what he shouldn't be saying, if he's disrespectful or not doing what he should be doing, what he, what this kid, what a kid would be quickly, what happened to this kid quickly is the kid would be put in his place. The kid would probably be smacked and told, you know, to go back to where you belong. Don't speak unless spoken to. Right? Don't, don't, don't get in our way. All you're to do as children is you're to, you're to be quiet, be respectful, and be obedient. And if I want something, then you need to jump up and get it for me. 
So a cultural understanding of children, children were sitting in the lowest place in, in this particular culture. Now Jesus takes and he does something and he, and he brings this child into his midst and puts the child on his lap and says, you got to become like a little child. Well, a little child, really? And we know there's a little bit of distaste. We know there's a little bit of like, what are you talking about? Because if, we, if you remember prior to this, in Matthew 19, while Jesus is speaking about the kingdom, little children were brought to him so that he might bless them. And what did the disciples do? They rebuked them. Get them away. And Jesus sees what their attitude is like and how, he's, how their disdain for them is inappropriate. And he says, no, bring them to me. For such is the kingdom of God. The little children, he, he then he totally reorients, reorients their minds so that, so that they would understand that children and their position and what they're like by nature reflects and resembles the nature of the kingdom much better than you adults who think you're on top or above. So it's this, the nature, it's the position, it's the lowliness of children in the culture that he's calling to. And he says, you need to become like a little child. It isn't the arrogant adult who wants to be on top who will find a place in the kingdom of God. It's the one who's like a lowly child who will be exalted. In Jesus' kingdom, there will be little ones who are given higher positions. And those who seek to put themselves on top are those who find themselves on the bottom. So he says, he's all for greatness. You want to be great? Great. How do you become great? You, got, you become the least of all. You become the servant of all. Look at what Jesus is going to do. He's going to become the greatest of all, and he's going to lower himself to the lowest place of all. No one's humbled himself already more than Jesus, and he just got started. He's already God in, incarnate, right? He's go, from heaven. He comes to earth. And he humbles himself and takes on the form of man. And it gets even worse. He humbles himself and takes on death. Death on a cross. And submits himself to death and raised from the dead. And now he's exalted higher than any name in heaven and earth. God has highly exalted him. This is the way it works in the kingdom. You want to be great? But again, what do we seek? We seek exaltation. We don't seek humiliation. We don't like the humility thing. It's because we, it, we, often we don't get even how the kingdom works. And it's often we find ourselves offended, jealous, angry, upset, because we're not getting what we want. But we just don't even know the way of Christ's kingdom. In keeping with this theme, the text moves on to another conversation that reveals how Jesus' agenda is often not our agenda. In verse 49, this is what we see. Verse 49, here's how it reads. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So here's this. Do you guys notice something in this text? It just comes right after what was said about greatness. And what's the first words? John answered. John answered to what Jesus just said about greatness in the kingdom and these little children. John answered them, and it's like he, you know, where where are you going, man? He talks, he's now like, like almost like he's jumping to a whole other issue about other people who are doing things in Jesus' name. 
Okay, and Jesus goes and he addresses the issue. It seems a little strange on the surface of it because of how it doesn't seem to connect really well. Yet, it's a lot like, I think, what happened with Jesus and the woman at the well. Do you remember the conversation with her? He's talking, he was talking about her sin, addressing an issue of her sexual immorality, and what's the thing that she wants to talk about next? Worship locations. That's what she jumps to. You know, you Jews say you worship in Jerusalem, and us Samaritans say you should worship here in Samaria. Which is it? Oh, um, okay. We, we just were talking about your sin, but now you want to talk about worship locations? You know, let's go there. And Jesus does. He goes there and answers the question. He doesn't say, wait a second, what were we just talking about? And he does the same thing here with John. And John's like the woman at the well. He's like, ooh. Um, he just nailed us, confronted us. And maybe it was a really awkward moment, and they're sitting there stunned. And he said, hey, uh, there's other people uh, casting out demons in your name and doing things in your name. Should, should we stop them? But then here again we see that Jesus wants his kingdom to spread, but John and we're just like him, we often want our kingdom to spread. And the motive is kind of being fleshed out here. So in these three cases, we see that here's Jesus' agenda, and then here's the disciples' agenda. And they're, they're not aligned. They're different. And it's, they're not random. They're, they're explicitly showing us how easy it is for these disciples, the ones even closest to Jesus, the apostles, are so not on board with what Jesus is doing. And they're off doing, it almost seems crazy and random, but it's not. It's kind of what we're like. Jesus is about his agenda, and it's clear, and they're about their agenda, and it becomes clear that they're not lined up. You know, John, John is wondering, just think about this in this particular text. He's wondering, you know, maybe, hey, should we, me and the boys, should we stop these other hoodlums? You know, they're out there casting out demons in your name. I mean, I, th- I think we should probably stop. What do you think, Jesus? It's, you can almost hear it in there. Like he's, he's the same guy who said, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire on these guys and toast them right here? He's like, John, you don't even know what spirit you're of. And it's like another way of saying, get behind me, Satan. Like you don't even understand that the enemy is just inf- infiltrating your thoughts. And, and all the way through here, the enemy is putting the seeds of these thoughts in their heads and their own pride is delighting in those that they sound, seem like good thoughts. And so they're going with it. You know, it's also interesting that, Jesus, that sorry, John didn't mention anything about them not following Jesus. Look in the text and what he says. He says that they weren't following us. Well, that's interesting, John. Now everybody's following us. Welcome, Jesus. Look at everybody following us. You know, you, start, you almost see, you start to see how this is all working. We're the stuff. We're the guys. We're the ones who are going to get all the high positions. We're the ones who have the power and the authority. We're the ones, hey, we're the ones who should be casting out demons. Jesus, I hear there's others. Should I stop them? Yeah. Jesus says, no. Whoever's not against us is for us. That's great. Once again, oops. A little bit of a correction there. Because how often, how easy is it to see John's all of a sudden worried about, concerned about, not the spread of Jesus' kingdom, it's really about his kingdom. 
the Apostle John. This is a, a quality guy. Good man. And John is thinking about his kingdom at this point, not Jesus. And all this starts because Jesus gives them privileges and power to cast out demons in his name. And with the privilege and the power, the enemy plants the thought of grandeur and position in their minds and their own pride and lust for it likes it, likes the thoughts of it and goes with it. And here's the thing. It's just like us. It reveals our own hearts. We start out committed to Jesus and to Jesus' kingdom. And somewhere along the road we drift. And now, if we're honest, it seems to be about me and my kingdom. Oh, but all in in God's name, of course. It doesn't matter if we're doing ministry in the name of Jesus. It can quickly become about us. It can become about power. It can become about position. It can become easily about status. And, if, and here's the thing, if that, if that gets threatened in any way, we become jealous, angry, or vindictive. This is why churches become jealous of other churches' ministries. If other churches are growing and doing well, and we're not, isn't it easy? Just, oh, judgmental. Yeah, they, they're so weak in their theology. I can't believe it. Look at their, what they're doing is goofy. They're just goofy, that's all. Yeah. Or, we say, or we say funny or slanderous things because really what's happening is it's revealing our own hearts. We're jealous, right? This can happen within ministries or volunteer work. Anytime there are others doing what we're doing, you know what we quickly do? Compare. We want to see how we size up. How am I compared to them? If they're up here and I'm down here, I don't like this. I like it when I was like, I'm up here, they're down here. That kind of makes, that makes me feel good. That's the way I like it. And once we do this, once we, once, once we open up the door for this, we immediately give nice ripe ground for the enemy to come in and plant those thoughts in our heads. And then that, we like the thoughts. So we go with those thoughts and they just breed vindictive, judgmental, critical, jealous hearts. And from that is all kinds of trouble and wickedness. You know, here's especially where it happens. If we're the ones on top, if we somehow have gotten to the place where we're on top in a ministry or whatever, or we're on top in what we're producing, or we have an authority in some way. And then there's always the up-and-comer, that one we're watching rise. And as we watch them rise, we start to feel threatened. Oh, no, don't rise too quick, too fast, because now I'm seeing that this means this could mean me losing. This could mean me going down. This could mean them here and I'm here. And our pride hates that. And so now all of a sudden we become jealous, vindictive, critical. That's how we act. We just like these, you know, hey, Jesus, should we go and stop them? Their ministry seems a little bit, it's not true to snuff. I don't know if it's, it's right the way you're, 
the way you like things done, and, and really, maybe I should get on Facebook and really go after them. <clears throat> and maybe if I do that, then, you know, subtly in my own heart, I know that, hey, maybe everyone will look and say, man, you're so smart, you're so amazing, you're so great, and they can see that, you know, in my putting them down, that really I'm up here, and that would be, that would be awesome. And everybody could really see what's what I'm made of. You know, this does nothing but expose that what really it's so easy for us in the name of Jesus to be more about our kingdom than his kingdom. And, you know, and then sometimes you don't know what happened. You think I it's all started off here. It was all about Jesus kingdom. At the beginning, it was like, yeah, we're following Jesus. That's what John said. And now they're following us. And next thing you know, it's, it's about me. And it can happen to every one of us. And that's the thing about this is the, the enemy knows that we can slip and slide toward this real easily. And so he puts these thoughts of grandeur in our head, thoughts of, you know, what we could really accomplish. And then we think, oh, look at, and then look at what they're doing. And, and then all of a sudden we come, become a little critical and we start comparing. And next thing you know, we become jealous or vindictive. We have to examine our motives. We have to be watchful. We, we, we have to be aware of the schemes of the evil one who seeks to derail us. Because these thoughts and these ideas are not too far off or unpleasing to us, especially to our flesh and to our pride. And if we're unaware and oblivious, we don't understand his schemes or his tactics or the way he's going to plant thoughts in our heads. And we do not know how to take every thought captive. We do not know how to renew our minds on the truth. We do not know how to set our minds on things above and stay focused and watchful and know his schemes and his tricks. We find ourselves that our hearts are all wrapped up in the wrong things. We're wrapped up in our kingdoms and not the kingdom of God. But we would never confess that. We just know it deep down. If that's the case, if that's where we're at, then, oh man, we need to confess that sin. We need to confess it to God. We need to confess it to others. And we need to seek God for the grace to get out of that ugly bondage. We should be at the place where we're excited. Could we say honestly you're excited and and thankful and grateful for what God is doing in other people's ministry and other people's lives and what others are doing. And when their success is your joy, you know your heart's in the right place. But when it's not, and you're like, eh, you know your heart's not in the right place. That needs to be confessed. That needs to be brought out in the light. And, that need, and then you need to turn to God and say, oh, Lord, give me a heart for your kingdom again, a pure and undefiled heart that loves and longs your, for your kingdom to go forward and not my own. It's not something that is like, yeah, I, you know, I did it once, so I'm never in threat of it happening again. No, you're always in threat of it happening. So you've got to guard and watch your heart and look at your motives. And in all three instances in this Luke 9 section, what we see here is that so often our agenda does not line up with Jesus's. That's really what's going on here. God has a plan for our lives, and often We don't like it. Well, it involves too much trial, struggle, suffering, or whatever. It it involves others watching others exalted and see them elevated. And and, and then, yeah, I'm supposed to go be in 
humble and be humiliated or whatever. You know, it, it involves things that we don't always like. And that we could like them if we knew what God's agenda was and we got on board with what he's doing. We would delight in it for the sake of his name, his glory, his kingdom, and our own lives. But often we get caught up in ourselves and we get, it's about our agenda. And you know what happens when you have an agenda and Jesus messes with it? This is his agenda. This is your agenda. I'm ticked. I don't like that. Angry, frustrated, bitter. Ugh. There's your heart for you. Lovely, isn't it? And the whole idea is for you to see, hopefully you see that. Oh, Lord, God, have mercy on me. My agenda is, it's, it's, it's about me. It's not about you. I really, man, I don't like often what you have. I want what I want. Lord, that we should be grieved over that. Hopefully the Lord causes us to see that because all of us are so easily tempted by it. And the enemy is constant. This is the one of the way. It's not like this, you know, like I said last week, this demonic battle with the enemy. The enemy is primarily going to hit you in your thoughts and give you all kinds of thoughts that if you go with them and dwell on them and go down that road, it's going to get in your heart. And next thing you know, it's all tangled up in there and your heart is full of poison. And now you need some serious surgery. You need God to have mercy on you. The enemy knows we struggle with pride. A love of self. So it's a, it's a way to attack. And he had in his, you could tell that he's constantly getting even the disciples in the text of scripture. We're not, we're not like ironclad people who are able just to skip along life and think that this won't affect us. People, if you don't, if you're not watchful, if you're not on guard, if you do not take your thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, if you're not careful about what you're thinking about, what you're dwelling on, you can be taken easily. And if you've been taken, what do you do? Oh, you've got to confess your sins to God, confess your sins to others, expose it. And then cry out to God, and then he brings healing and grace. You need his grace in your life. If you're not kingdom-focused, you need him to make you kingdom-focused. It's a serious threat. And every not one person in this room is immune to it. And it's something that we have to confess and deal with quite regularly. Because often, our agenda... It's not Jesus' agenda. And therein lies the problem. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that you reveal to us and expose in us by your Spirit our sins. We so often, O oh Lord, I must confess, we fall in love with the praise of men. We fall in love with greatness. We fall in love with the idea of us establishing a wonderful kingdom. And we deceive ourselves and deceive others. And we often say, yeah, it is in your name and for your sake and your glory. But underneath it all, Lord, we know that so often it's for ourselves. For our glory. 
Father, have mercy on every one of us here. Please expose these, these sins in our hearts that we would be bold confessors of them. We would confess them to you, confess them to others, and we would cry out to you and look to you to give us the grace that we need so that we would, we would pursue greatness through humility. We would pursue greatness through service. We would see the promises. We would see your ways in the ways of your kingdom and delight in them. For we ask this in Christ. Amen.